This is the current federal tax developments for the week of May the 2nd, 2022. Current federal tax developments are brought to you by Kaplan Financial Education and by your state Society of CPAs. This week, we're going to take a look at a few special issues. First, we're going to have a discussion of a case that deals with the special rules under IRC Section 104 for military disability and retirement benefits. We'll talk a little bit about the special structures there and then how one taxpayer got this very wrong. The second case, we're going to look at a case that went to the Eighth Circuit, an appeal of a previous tax court loss where the taxpayer was attempting to claim a deduction in a C-corporation for management fees paid to various shareholders. As we'll discover, even though they'd been doing that for 20 years, uh, the court felt that there was nothing there, that it was not really management fees, which were kind of an amorphous concept, but rather just straight-out distributions to the shareholders, which in a C-Corp generally is not a good thing as that results in taxable dividends to the shareholders, no deduction at the corporate level. So, bad result, even though it had been going on for 20 years. We'll talk about proposed regulations that were released this week where the IRS, who had suggested earlier when they released the anti-clawback regulations, that they were going to bring out a set of regulations like this, this week brought out regulations that seek to limit the ability to use the anti-clawback rules uh, when the basically when the lifetime exemption for gifts drops back down to where it, half of where it is now. When that happens, to somehow rescue that excess amount of potential gifting that could have been used prior to the change in the rule going down again and being able to push that forward so that you'd retain the benefit of the asset in some way, shape, or form, but technically have the gift be treated under the bigger exclusion. We're going to talk about how the IRS is looking to cut that back and stop it. And then finally, we have some probably not terribly welcome news, but not unexpected, regarding when we're going to be able to electronically file Schedule K-2 and K-3 for Subchapter S corporations, and let's just say it's going to be a little longer than we had expected or the IRS had previously indicated. Let's go ahead and start with our first case this week, the case of Valentine versus Commissioner, Tax Court Memorandum Decision 2022-42. And this is a case of a taxpayer who was receiving Veterans Administration disability payments. She had been in the service. She had some disability. It wasn't really told to us what the nature of that disability was or how it had happened to her. But in any event, she has a service-related disability was being paid disability by the VA, but also was receiving a military pension. So she received that as well. Now, the taxpayer in this case needs to navigate a few special rules, and this is where things went a little bit south for the taxpayer. In this case, normally under Section 104, if you have, if you basically receive any amounts that are damages other than punitive damages received whether by suit or agreement, whether by lump sum periodic payments on account of personal physical injuries or physical sickness, then you are allowed to exclude that from your income. However, if we're talking about, in this case, military disability programs, that's a little different. This has a special rule under Section 104A4 
that talks about excluding from income amounts received as a pension, annuity, or similar allowance for personal injuries or sickness resulting from active service in the armed services of any country or the Coast and Geodetic Survey or Public Health Service or as disability annuity payable under the previous provisions of Sections 808 of the Foreign Service Act of 1980. Now, that, as I say, is a separate exclusion. And in this case, though, there are some special rules under Section 104B that actually expand on that. And in general, that provision does not apply if you can meet the general rule of being paid for injuries under A2. Except, I love this, we're saying no, but except um, if you receive an amount by reason of a combat-related injury. So we can talk about that. Or on application, if they had had the right but weren't yet receiving compensation from Department of Veterans Affairs. Now, actually, the, the statute says, to be very clear here, on application, therefore, he would be entitled to receive disability compensation from Department of Veterans Affairs. So, basically, we have a couple of options here. So, to put it fundamentally very simply is, if you actually are getting disability payments from the service, generally, you can exclude disability payments as payments for sickness, injuries, etc., just like workers' comp, um, under the regular rule of A4. And if you actually apply to the Veterans Affairs, apply to the VA, I should say, and you're given that disability payment, then it's going to be excluded there. Now, this special rule says there are a couple of exceptions for other pension payments you may receive from the Department of Defense. If your payments from DOD are due to a combat-related injury, now remember, the first definition was service-related service disease or injury. This is combat-related, so obviously... Um, we are hoping that in most cases, our service members are not in combat. It happens. It's going to happen. It's the way that works. But obviously, most service members are not at any particular point in time in combat. And in fact, a large portion of them will go their entire career without being engaged in combat. It, they get, nevertheless, if they, subject, if they suffer an injury or disease related to their service, that's under the special rule. But if it's combat-related, then they get a larger exclusion. Secondly, even if it's not a combat-related injury, but if they just simply hadn't applied to VA for their benefits and they're receiving their pension, an amount equal to, effectively, what they could get from VA could be excluded. Now, that's the fundamental structure we're looking at here. Unfortunately, our taxpayer here, who, by the way, also was late filing her return, uh, she didn't quite understand that. She was receiving both a disability pension from VA and she received a 1099-R for regular military retirement from the Department of Defense. Now, the IRS filed a substitute for return for her because she hadn't filed returns. Uh, she came back, had a return prepared. But on that return, she, interestingly enough, excluded the vast majority of the payment reported on the 1099-R. Uh, she had essentially wiped out a big chunk of what was there. 
So she had had 23801 for Army-based retirement plan, and she excluded all but a very minor portion of that, $3,158. She treated that as non-taxable. In addition, she received the VA benefits for that year, which were not reported on a 1099-R, and she did not report those as taxable benefits. So now we're looking at two different structures here, right? So now we look at this, and the court went for an explanation. Now, she it appears as best I can tell from reading the case that what happened here was she apparently went and read Publication 525 and portions of it that attempted to explain special rules related to military disability. And yeah, she didn't quite get all the pieces together. It seems like she missed out. So the court was trying to figure out, and the court said effectively, she never really explained why. Uh, you know, she was already receiving amounts that were clearly designated as her disability benefits from her service from the Department of Defense. She was receiving separately, stated by the Department of Defense, a payment for an annuity that related to her military service and what she had earned as retirement benefits. Now, I think we also would say, presumably, the Department of Defense is aware of these rules. We would certainly hope so. And because of that, we would also presume that if she had had to leave the service and qualified for her retirement payments due to a combat-related injury, that they would have known about that exclusion. But this wasn't reported that way. Nevertheless, she's trying to catch up on her unfiled returns. She turns it in this way and excludes the vast majority of what would be her taxable income. Now, not discussed, I'm not, I'm not going to worry about because it's a totally separate issue was, she also had a Schedule C business that was a multi-level marketing operation that showed a big loss, which was also in there. So in any event, between excluding this big chunk of her military pension and those losses she generated from that uh, Schedule C business, she essentially wiped out her income. Now, as you might guess, the Schedule C business didn't go very well for her either. But that's another long story, and that story, frankly, is not very different from a lot of stories we see in that area, so that one wasn't as interesting. So the court said, well, she, wasn't, she didn't really explain what her qualifications were, so we're going to look at the two ways she could get it. First, obviously, she could get under the broad category. If she was being paid a pension, she was eligible to have applied for VA disability but hadn't done so, she could exclude the amount that she should have received from VA. But as the court pointed out in the year in question, she had already applied for and was receiving, you know, the full amount of disability she qualified for. So it, it wasn't as if she somehow hadn't received that payment. Now, she also tried to argue that the VA had made a retroactive finding she qualified for disability. Now, this one, I understand her confusion a bit. I suspect that she may not have applied immediately for disability payments. And so the VA may have decided, you know, this may have been a disability that arguably she could have applied for far earlier. But she hadn't. And the VA never designated that she qualified for a retroactively higher amount. 
They did change that initial finding that she was 30% disabled. And then she was, you know, changed to 90% disabled. But the court said none of that ever said this was a retroactive finding and we're giving you, you know, and you, you had these benefits in the past that you had received as retirement benefits, perhaps, that really shouldn't have been taxed. And if that was the case, then she could have gone back for those years and gotten her amounts, you know, gotten essentially refunds of the taxes paid. Uh, rather, as the court noted, there, there was no view that there was any determination after the year in question here, 2016, uh, that they redetermined her you know, benefits after that and that some of her retirement benefit should have been paid as disability. And certainly what was found in 2016 didn't qualify for this. Okay, that was part of it. The other way she could have done, so the court said, well, the other way that there could be more excludable would have been if you could show that it was combat-related. Now, she kind of vaguely makes a reference to combat service-related disability when describing the general rule as she had picked it up. Now, the court said it wasn't clear if she was just confusing the two concepts or if she was actually arguing that she had a combat-related disability. But the problem was there was nothing she put forward that suggested her disability arose from combat in some way, shape, or form. And remember, the burden is on the taxpayer to make that showing. And as I noted, I would hope that our Department of Defense would understand this rule and would have noted that if she had a combat-related disability, that they would have excluded the proper amount, which they didn't. So absent that and without a showing of a combat-related disability, the court felt we can't really, you know, exclude based on that. Now, what was kind of interesting toward the end is, though, and I think the problem is what it appears she tried to do was take 90% of the pension she had received, right? After a some date, somehow she used the 90% to calculate an exclusion from her pension fund she received. And, you know, the court said, well, no, that's, again, it wasn't retroactive. And as the court noted, what she was referring to in Publication 525 was describing the situation where you had not applied for benefits, but you would have qualified to receive those benefits, right? And one way you could do it is obviously a later showing where VA says this. And they're saying, but that's not what you did in this case. There was no prior, in essence, prior benefits would have been before 16. And you're not claiming anything there. Obviously, she's late filing. So most likely, even if there was something back there, the statute had shut down on that. And secondly, you know, saying, yeah, you're just misinterpreting. It did point out, as always, that the publications are not binding on the IRS or the courts. Now, that's important to remember because you don't ever want to base, if you can avoid it, your position solely on an IRS publication. You want to try to find some analysis from the law that will back up the position in the publication. That's dangerous because if the, you know, the courts are not going to listen normally to a citation merely from the publications. Rather, they're going to go back and say, what does the law say? We don't care what the pub says. 
Uh, now, the IRS doesn't like to argue against the pubs and usually doesn't, so that, that's a practical issue. But the other problem is that this was a taxpayer attempting to interpret the publication to cover a situation that, honestly, it didn't cover. It was an interpretation of an interpretation. She was expanding on what was a specific illustration of a specific fact pattern that wasn't hers and then trying to use that to push it over into a fact pattern that wasn't the same. This is a mistake I see tax pros make as well, uh, where you try to use an inter... You're going from an interpretive document. This could be something like the tax book. It could be the you know quick finder. It could be the federal tax coordinator. But you're going from an interpretive document that's explaining how to treat something and then we're using that and trying to reason out from that further onto a different situation. Again, remember, interpretive documents, you have to only limit them. To the extent their logic is right, their logic is limited to the specific situation they cover. And I think that was probably one of the major issues we had here, because you can't attempt to interpret an interpretation and expect that to work. So again, bottom line, when you're doing something that you have an unusual situation, you have to do the actual hard work and go back and run it back to the law, the regs, and other things that are binding on the service and the courts, rather than taking the quick out and going from an interpretive document that you think, well, maybe that's what I've got, and this is kind of like it, so I should be able, those always get you in trouble. Just bottom line, I've seen more problems, and I've read more tax court cases, where it's been clear somebody was running an interpretation of an interpretive document, and that doesn't tend to turn out well, unless you get lucky and you actually end up with the same interpretation as would have resulted from the law. In this case, the court went back to the law and tried to come up with an interpretation that would work with her facts. And as they told us, frankly, it just didn't happen. Next up is a case of Aspro versus Commissioner. Now, this is an appeal of a prior tax court case. In the case of Aspro, which was a asphalt uh Basically, let's see, it was an asphalt paving company in Waterloo, Ohio. They had, for the last 20 years at a minimum, the court said at least 20 years, the C Corporation every year at year end, except for one, had paid to the, effectively, to the shareholders of the corporation a management fee, separate and apart from their regular compensation and bonuses. There was this management fee. Now, the catch with this is, and I realize a lot of you don't work with small, closely held C corporations. For various reasons, they're much more popular in Iowa than anywhere else. In fact, the last couple of times I've ever taught a C corp course, it's been in Iowa. So it's interesting. Yes, they pop up more there. But in any event, if you never worked with them, and you know, when I started in practice before the 86 Tax Act, that was kind of the normal structure for a lot of small businesses that work with CPA firms. It would have been a C-Corp for a lot of reasons. Uh, the Tax Reform Act of 1986, by getting rid of what was the general utilities doctrine, 
made it a real problem to operate as a C-Corp because there was no way really out of the double taxation. Well, obviously, you never wanted to pay the double tax, even in back in pre-86, because general utilities options only got you out of the ta double tax when you sold the assets of the corporation and liquidated. So there were back and forth cases all over the place back there about unreasonable compensation. This really is an unreasonable comp case in many ways. But the goal you had in those small C corporations was to get their income down to as close as you could to zero. Because you had both the fact that you'd pay a corporate tax and then when the money went out to the shareholders, if assuming they want the money, and they often do want the money, uh, that that would be a second tax paid there. No deduction at the C-Corp level for that distribution, but a tax again at the shareholder level. And, you know, that, that was kind of a problem that we had that. And there was a problem of the accumulative earnings tax. If you build up too much earnings inside your C-Corp and didn't pay dividends, you got hit with the accumulative earnings tax. So for that reason, you had a lot of C-Corps that, yes, showed this very little income. And there were back and forth fights all over the years about reasonable comp, etc. in these scenarios. Well, now we're going to go back and play this out again in this corporation. The management fees had a couple of big problems in the view of the tax court and in the view of the panel for the Eighth Circuit. First, there was no formal agreement between the shareholders and the corporation that explained the simple ideas of, look, management's a very vague term. What exactly are we buying? If I was going to, with my CPA firm, the CPA firm I'm a shareholder in, if we were going to be paying somebody for some services, uh, we would generally want to have a contract specifying exactly what they're supposed to do rather than just vaguely managing. You know, what exactly do we mean by management services? We had no contract explaining what would be paid. And in fact, in testimony, they really had a tough time explaining what they did and how that was different than the work they were doing as officers of the corporation for which you were paid a salary and bonus. I mean, what was this other thing? Now, to be honest, you might assume, and I would assume too, that it may very well be paid as a way to kind of lower, you know, the amount of compensation on a W-2 so that you might not be as apt to get an unreasonable comp argument. And I'm sure that entered into this. They also could not provide any description of how it was computed. Now, the court backed into a way it was computed because amazingly, every year, it seemed to take the corporation down to very, very little income, except for the one year it wasn't paid, and that was a year where the company had a need for cash due to expansion, which also, by the way, helps you justify cumulative earnings. So it looked like the methodology here was simply how much do we need to get out of the C-Corp to get down to no tax due. That's not really a method. You know, I'm not going to agree to pay somebody for whatever services for the CPA firm that I'm with, you know, and say, oh, yeah, we're going to pay you whatever we need to get down to no income this year. That's not an agreement any third party will enter into. So with an unrelated party, that's just not the way it is. So the problem is the court found no evidence this was an ordinary and necessary business expense for this corporation. 
and it has to be under 162. They also found that it was also excessive compensation. Under 162, compensation has to be reasonable to be allowed as an ordinary and necessary business expense. And they said, well, this clearly was compensating for services, regardless of whether it should be as an employee or not. And they're saying that compensation wasn't reasonable because there's absolutely no evidence the company could produce about what services had been rendered. And, you know, that, that's a huge negative for no agreement. And by the way, if you got an agreement, then making sure are really checking, make sure these people are doing these things. It's a related party. It's automatically going to raise the IRS's ability to question the transaction dramatically, right? So you, you don't have a third party there who's saying, wait a minute, I'm not giving you guys the rest of the income. You know, I, I'm an independent investor, whatever. I'm, you know, I, no, 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 no. I'm not going to let you just walk off of the income. You know, I'm going to demand something better. And, you know, you don't tell us how to compute it. So the court made the obvious conclusion that what we had here was simply a distribution. Now, the big thing to note here is, and this is something that we often take way too much comfort in, they went for 20 years and never had anything questioned. And you don't know how many times I've heard people say, or I've heard clients say, well, my buddy's been doing this for decades and the IRS has never questioned it, right? Or my old CPA let me do it, we never got questioned. Now, by the way, honestly, it's also true, even if there had been an exam in the interim, agents sometimes miss things. And so that doesn't matter. You always have to be ready to defend your position, assuming it's questioned. And you cannot rely upon this theory was, well, it's never been questioned in the past. Multiple times over the years doing this update, I have pointed out to you specific cases where somebody got nailed for something that they had gotten away with for 20, 30 years. The IRS does not have, the fact the IRS doesn't question it for all that time period does not somehow give you a pass going forward. The court never even vaguely discussed any concept that they could get away with this simply because, hey, it had never been questioned before. Next up, I want to discuss a couple of things here rather quickly. The IRS in Regulation 118-913-21 proposed regs issued on April the 27th. You may remember a while back, we talked about the IRS finalizing what's called the anti-clawback rules. Now, if you're not aware, remember at the end of 2025, the amount of the effective lifetime exclusion for gifts and what you could pass on your death, that cumulative number, will drop to about half of where it is before that date. That's because the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, that particular provision, expires on that date. Now, the question that had been raised was, what happens if I had, let's say that at that date, my exclusion was $13 million, And it's going to drop to, let's say, $6.8 million. Well, if I've already given away $13 million prior to the end of twenty five. And then I die in 26, the way a 706 works, right, is we take whatever we've got at the date of death, and then ignoring this category that's going to come up here, we then add back our gifts, right, into that category. We add those up, treat them as part of the estate, but the gifts come in at their value when they were gifted. And then we take a credit for the whatever the unified credit is, right, 
plus a credit for any gift taxes we'd paid. Okay, now remember, we paid no gift taxes. We'd made that $13 million uh, gift before the law changed back. So without anti-clawback rules, I would have had no tax on a $13 million gift, but the whole $13 million would have come back into my estate, and I would have only had a credit to offset $6.5 million, or $6.8 million, I guess, in my example. So I'd have paid. So in essence, the estate would have paid tax on an additional $6.2 million. They would suddenly have to pay tax on $6.2 million, even though that had left the estate prior to the change in the law. So the IRS anti-clawback rules essentially say that your, in essence, your credit's going to be equal to, effectively, the amounts that you were allowed at that date, the 6.5, or if greater, the total amount of gifts you had given for which no gift tax was paid, and, and that it will not account the, you know, the present interest gift rules. Those just get excluded. That gets excluded. But the rest of the gifts that would have been taxable, you know, we'll get it for that. So that's anti-clawback. Well, the concern is there are some gifts that, even though they've been given, get added back in and get treated as part of a taxable estate. And that becomes a problem because gift taxes aren't deductible, right? Gift taxes aren't deductible in computing the estate tax. So bottom line is get it back in there, get it taxed, and in some cases get the appreciation back in. Now, the concern here was, though, even with it coming back in with appreciation, if that gift had been made and was treated as having been made before the exclusion went away, then when it, you know, we're going to yank back that extra amount of exclusion into the estate. So the theory was that people might try to make these sorts of gifts where they retain significant control that would bring it back in the estate, but they'd still make that gift to preserve the anti-clawback rules. These are meant to limit those cases where, in essence, and it lists a number of specific sections there in the manual, but they list a number of specific provisions that apply to bring things back into the estate and put it back on the 706. And any of those things that bring it specifically into the estate again and treat as part of the taxable estate, right, and basically, you know, give, give us the gift tax back, uh, you know, but essentially don't give us a deduction. The gift tax will not effectively be out of the estate, so we'll add that gift tax back in. In those scenarios... Uh, what they're going to say is that's not going to qualify for the clawback rules. Now, there's an interesting special rule, though. A lot of these provisions, some of them we talk about, are ones that, you know, they, they're like a three-year look-back period, or there's a three-year period involved. It turns out that if you give up these rights at least 18 months before you die, whatever these rights were to hold, if you give those up entirely at least 18 months before you die... Then, under those scenarios, I have a bunch of examples, uh, it, we won't get the anti-clawback rules will still apply and it will work. Now, the problem, of course, is how do you know for sure what, that, that, you're that you're releasing this 18 months before you're going to die? don't really know that, right? Because we haven't died yet. You know, you don't know the die. Even if, even if you're told, hey, you've got this disease, it's slow moving, but it's likely, you know, you're likely going to die of this in three years, um, you still could be involved in an accident tomorrow morning. 
that means you won't survive the 18 months. So the 18 month rule is interesting. Now these are proposed regs. You're seeing discussions related to them. Uh, I suspect they will go final, very similar. It's something we knew was coming. But if you've done planning and planning that you think is going to somehow extend this out, make advantage of the anti-clawback rules. If you're doing anti-clawback rule gift planning, you want to make sure you understand these regs and review them. They're not that long. Uh, you know, if you're in the area, you'll recognize immediately the list of things that are covered. But you want to make sure you come under this and make it work. Finally, our surprise for the week, and it wasn't a good one. The IRS updated the FAQ schedules K2 and K3 frequently asked questions for Form 1065, 1120S, and 8865. There was an April 27th update to one question on the site. Okay. So that update updated the question that tells us about the date on which we would be able to electronically file the K2, K3. As you may remember, when the K2, K3 first came out, you know, we were told they were coming out. This is question seven that gets updated. The IRS indicated late last year that you would not be able to electronically file these returns immediately. And it also wouldn't be able to electronically file them before the initial due date of what's normally March 15th for a calendar year entity, which vast majority of these are. So we knew that, and the IRS then also published a rule that said, well, you could do PDF attachments in that scenario. Now, the PDF attachment method is what you've been using and, and are using today for S-corporations, right? It's the only method available, which is fine. It works well, except it doesn't work so well if your client Right. If you have a lot of members, a lot of shareholders or a lot of partners. Now, obviously, we have S-Corp cap. So maybe the S-Corps aren't as bad in this area. Partnerships could be way more partners. But we do hit the hitch. I, I believe CCH was saying for their program, you couldn't have more than 50 attachments, more than 50 partners or S-Corp shareholders to make to do the PDF version. And S-Corporations can have more than 50. You know, in fact, you could go even above the 100 limitation because of the special rule for, for relatives and going back six generations uh, to find the common ancestor. But, you know, uh, probably most of us don't have a huge problem there on the S-Corps. I mean, S-Corps at that size get a little bit fun to run with. Uh, we'll just say at that point. However, we did, and we've already discovered that they will now take the 1065s. Those came live on March the 10th. But this updated list makes a change key to one number. Previously, we have been told that the, um, the 1120S version would be allowed to be electronically filed somewhere in late June of 2022. Now the IRS has given us a specific date, but that date's in late July. Right now, the projected MEF date is July 24th. And as always, that date only works once your tax software also updates to that. So if you had been planning to file those S-Corp returns, let's say by the end of June, and you're going to do it electronically with the MEF instead of using the PDF version, you may need to contact the clients and tell them it's going to be the end of July if we're going to continue to wait and not do the PDF attachment version. Right? That's there. 
Now, they do remind us here in question 7, as they have for a while, that they are keeping the PDF option available for this entire filing season. My guess is most, if not all, S-corporations are just going to go that route unless they cannot use that due to software limitations, either IRS-imposed or software vendor-imposed limitations. So if you have been delaying filing the S's because you wanted to go the full-blown electronic, not upload, not have all that PDF upload stuff go with the system, if that was a concern of yours, you didn't want that to happen, uh, you might want to rethink it now. You're certainly going to be delaying longer. So be aware, July 24th is the date. Again, the PDF option available all the way through the year. They did not change the date in which they expect to have the Form 8865 information available. That will be January of next year. That one, as far as I know, is still in the middle of a weird resolution uh, with CCH and uh, CCH and the IRS is still kind of working that or the other vendors are going as to wait, wait, you know, there, there are these at more than 50 and you're telling us by the time the due date comes, we absolutely still can't do it. You know, what are we going to do about those? So we'll see if we get anything more, but that, that that's kind of open. This has been the current federal tax developments for the week of April, or I should say May the 2nd. We're actually into May now. 2022. Don't forget your not-for-profit due dates are coming up mid-May, so don't forget that little one coming. Uh, as always, you can, if you have any questions, you can ask me, Ed Zollers at CurrentfulTaxDevelopments.com. I also monitor the Connect groups for Arizona, New Jersey, uh, Illinois, Minnesota. Take a look in Washington and look a little bit into any discussions that crop up on Idaho's site. So if you're a member of those societies and you post something to their discussion groups, I'll try to look and answer there. Uh, otherwise, hopefully you're having a good just after tax season uh, time period uh, before you have to ramp up. If you've got a lot of not-for-profits, you're probably still feeling like it's tax season and you're working through that. Uh, but otherwise, hopefully you're having a good time enjoying yourself. And we will take a look, see what else happens in the coming weeks, and be back here next week for more current federal tax developments.